Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Today we're going to do a special episode to celebrate this, our 50th episode. It's been over a year now since Connor and I put together a slightly rambly episode about Roman legacies, and I'm so pleased we've stuck with it through a rather tumultuous year. It's been fulfilling for me to put all my Merovingian knowledge out there, and it's been a pleasure to see people listening and, hopefully, enjoying the stories. I've always had a passion for talking about the less known or less popular parts of history, and knowing that we're finding our niche is just awesome. It's also been a great learning experience for Connor and I. At the start, neither of us really knew much about making a podcast, and I like to think we've gotten a much better handle on it over the past year. We've struggled at points to fit in around our busy lives, but we've always found a way, even if there have been some missed weeks and delays. Having someone else to rely upon makes it all far easier though, especially for me. Coming from an academic background, I've struggled a lot to find a balance between entertaining, accessible, and informative. It's a surprisingly hard line to walk, and having Connor here to speak for the so-called common man has helped me rein in a lot. And on that note, let's get to the episode. Over the last couple of weeks, Connor has been listening back and noting down things that he thinks would be interesting to revisit, or just things that he thinks I didn't explain very well the first time. So, welcome Connor, and welcome listeners to episode 50, Q&A. So, my first question about the histories is why is Gregory alone in writing this sort of story about his time? That's a really good question, because in the context of Frankish histories, Gregory really stands out. Like, in a little bit, his histories will end, and we'll introduce the Chronicle of Fredegar, and it's a wildly different source. Much less detail, much less nuance, really more of a chronicle of events, rather than Gregory's work, which really looks like a recognisable work of a historian. And no work will come close to his for centuries of French history. But there is another context for Gregory's work that is important, and that is one of Roman legacies. Gregory is writing, in his specific situation, but he is pulling inspiration heavily from a series of late Roman historians. Most of the successor states actually have their great historians. Isidore of Seville for Spain, Cassiodorus for Italy, Procopius for Eastern Rome, even Bede for Britain, though he will come later. They're all building new techniques and approaches, but are heavily versed in the Roman tradition of historians like Tacitus and Suetonius. I don't want to diminish Gregory's work, it is still groundbreaking and original in many ways, but it is important to remember this difference. Because our podcast is about Gaul and the Merovingians, we see him in the context of Gaul, and in that context he has no equal. But he certainly didn't see himself that way. To Gregory, he was the lesser son attempting to live up to the daunting legacy of Roman scholarship. This is apparent from the very beginning of his histories. He not only starts at the beginning with the creation of the universe by God, which is the traditional way of late antique historians beginning their work. He even apologizes to his readers right at the start for his poor rural grammar. This is kind of a weird point to us, but the context is that, for some reason, the late Roman scholars became absolutely obsessed with grammar to an almost insane degree. 
We don't need to get into exactly why this is, but Gregory apologising for his poor Latin grammar shows that he sees himself as attempting a traditional Roman-style history, rather than beginning a new trend. Of course, this wasn't the way history would see him. In fact, he is basically the godfather of Frankish and then French historians. Most of the later chronicles, including Fredegar's, just start with an almost word-for-word reprint of Gregory's histories. So Gregory's situation is an odd one where from our perspective he is like a shining light in Frankish history, but from his, he is attempting a humble work inspired by his immediate contemporaries. A friend of ours by the name of Murray also wanted to know why wouldn't Theuderic just have killed his half-brothers? And on that note, is this a sign of Merovingian culture changing, or are we just looking at too few individuals to draw accurate conclusions at this point? Shout out to Mari, thanks for listening. Um, yeah, Theuderic and his half-brothers is a really interesting one, because he was definitely the one in power on the one hand, and Clovis had just gone about removing every rival to his power, so there was certainly precedent for doing this. So it seems like a rather simple equation. Even if he didn't want to kill his brothers, why not just disinherit them and seize the whole kingdom for yourself? We can't know for sure, but I think that there are a few things we can consider. First, we shouldn't discount the influence of Christianity. History teaches us that often new converts are far more evangelical and take their religion far more seriously than those who were born into it. For this generation, Theuderic would likely have been a new convert, so we can't discount the chance that he just thought he would go to hell if he tried to do such a thing. There's also the ever-important legacy of Clovis. Clovis was such a successful king, and unlike Clothar, he had made the division that he wanted between his sons clear. So for Theuderic to immediately break with this arrangement and go back on his father's word would probably have been a wildly unpopular move. Also, we know that Theuderic just moved straight into a kind of senior king role, and there was every chance that he thought this would be enough. He might not have felt threatened by his half-brothers, not only were they underage, but he was already a successful warrior and commander, and he might have just thought they were no threat to his authority. The concepts of kingship and Merovingian rule were completely new, so it is entirely possible that Theuderic thought that he would take like a Clovis-type position, while his half-brothers became more like the minor Frankish kings who were his allies. Of course, we know that his three brothers were way too ambitious to accept such a thing, but he had no way of knowing this at the time. As for the cultural change, it is definitely something that did happen throughout the period. Theuderic is a bit too early for it. I think there are these other reasons that explain why he did what he did. But the later kings were bound by tighter cultural restrictions. Even by the time of Clothar's children, we can see how the kings are becoming more limited in the actions they can take. Sigebert kept defeating Chilperic, but he was unable to finish him off for years, thanks to the opposition from Charibert and Guntram. It would only get harder and harder for kings to take such drastic action as Merovingian rules solidified. On the note of Clothar, I find him to be a very interesting character, but do we know if he ever actually added anything to the realm? He seems very bloodthirsty and one-dimensional in Gregory's portrayal. Yeah, Clothar is kind of a weird king in the sources. He does some truly heinous things, 
But because he is the father of all of the kings who ruled while Gregory was writing, he gets given a lot of slack. Even in the hagiographies of Radegund, where he should be an obvious villain, the writers go out of their way to paint him in a sympathetic light. Um, But you are right, from our modern perspective, he really just seems greedy and power-hungry. Capable, for sure, but he doesn't actually add anything, like you say. There's no great reforms to the myriad of issues in the state. All the things that we are taught in the modern day to think a successful ruler does, Clothar mostly seems to ignore. But I think the thing to remember about Clothar is our source and perspective bias. Gregory does not think a king should embark upon wide-reaching reforms. In his mind, that's not the king's main job. Remember how openly he mocks Chilperic's attempts at reform? Things that make him seem like a thoughtful and diligent king to us today made Gregory laugh. A king's job in Gregory's mind, and in the mind of many at the time, was to provide stability. In short, keep the nobles and princes in line, destroy anyone who threatens your rule both externally and internally. And Clothar definitely did this. He put his father's realm back together piece by piece using a mix of military skill, patience, political maneuvering, and straight-up brutality. In Gregory's eyes, that's a pretty good king. If he'd listened to the church more and done less murder and rape, he might have been remembered far more fondly, but he was still effective, and Gregory seems to respect that, even if we don't. So, yeah, the question of whether Clothar was a good king is all about what you think a good king is meant to do. Today, we want to see a king who works hard to improve people's lives, but embarking upon massive projects is difficult at the time. We remember Justinian as a brilliant emperor today, but his wars and his massive building projects weakened the Roman state and arguably led to the loss of much of the empire. Clothar didn't conquer massive new territories, and he didn't make sweeping, progressive legal and cultural changes, but he did provide some stability. At least, you know, as much as we can ask for from the Merovingian period. On the topic of these early Merovingians, I'd like to ask about what you think made Merovingian legitimacy so strong. It seems to only take a generation or two before they are the indisputable rulers of Gaul. I find the comparison to Genghis Khan and the Mongols to be interesting, and the way that the dynasties react to succession and division. Yeah, the Mongolian comparison is definitely interesting. Um... Both groups were fearsome warriors with like massive military skill but very little administrative experience, and they conquered existing states that then had to adapt to try rule them. Uh, both also relied on prestige of a single figure whose family became the only legitimate source of authority in the realm. The family of Genghis becomes the undisputed rulers of the empire in much the same way that the family of Clovis became the undisputed kings. I think in both cases it is again about stability. These are large, ambitious, but politically inexperienced warrior classes that want to avoid division and hold on to the riches that they have gained rather suddenly. Once you question the right of the family of Genghis to rule, or the family of Clovis, there are really no barriers anymore and the whole system will fall apart, and that's just bad for everyone. So the warrior elites see that the easiest way to maintain their position is to support a single family to the exclusion of all others, which brings stability for a while. 
both the Mongol realm and the Merovingian kingdoms face a lot of civil war and conflict pretty soon after their patriarch's death. But even that is preferable to the total disintegration of the realm that would have happened if you removed the legitimacy of the family at the top. Three or four realms fighting amongst themselves is preferable to a hundred different warlords, you know? Plus, the personal prestige of the Great Conqueror's family helps the new dynasty make deals with the conquered people, which also helps keep the money flowing in and makes the conquered lands less rebellious. It was not a perfect system, and neither realm was able to maintain their dominance for long, but it worked for a while because it was a system that benefited all of the major stakeholders. It wasn't until the situation radically changed, as rule became more settled and local, that the math began to change and the real challenges to the dynasties started to crop up. Now, we've talked about several powerful women in this period. How is it that you think they kept their prominent positions seemingly long after the deaths of their husbands? Yeah, so this is what my master's thesis was about, and I could talk about the Merovingian queens for hours, so I'm going to try to keep it fairly short. Basically, there were two main ways that the Merovingian queens gained power, and both were based around reputation. Queens like Clothild and Radagon became holy symbols, which gave them a measure of protection and political power on its own. Uh, queens like Fredegund and Brunhild used money to build networks of patronage by allies at court, appointed their people into important positions, and then used a mix of kind of intimidation and assassination to remove anyone who just refused to get on board. Both paths required a fine political skill and determination, and both relied upon their proximity and later association with uh, a powerful king to really get going. Because the king was an autocrat, so all of the power rested solely in his hands. And early Merovingian kings also kept their strategy of equidistance from the different interest groups in the realm, which allowed the queens to use their proximity to the king to make themselves kind of like power brokers, influencing both the king and the nobles in a way that no one else in the realm could, and that gave them a lot of power. Um, but as you say, the queens were so reliant on their husbands, how were some of them able to survive and even thrive in power after their husbands were dead? Well, first it must be noted that most of them didn't. Uh, we hear about the successful ones, but most of the queens fade into the background without ever really making a mark on the period. Uh, I'd say there are two key factors in the survival of the successful queens, though. The first is legitimacy. Clothild, Fredegund, and Brunhild all had the benefit of having at least one of their sons survive to rule, and this maintained their relevance. Radagon didn't have this, but she was so famous and beloved at this point that she kind of built her own legitimacy. Uh, having sons which you can influence while they are underage, and even beyond that, makes you far more powerful in court. Uh, the other key factor is patronage. If you've spent years building up your power base and appointing dozens and dozens of supporters into key positions, it is beneficial for them to just keep supporting you rather than roll the dice on someone else. Especially if that someone else is a rival noble, or a king who might resent your ties to the previous regime. Uh, this is why Fredegund was so hard for Guntram to dislodge in Paris, and why Brunhild was so easy for Chilperic to dislodge after Sigebert's death. See, Fredegund had spent decades building her personal influence, 
to the point where we sometimes have examples that look like her dictating Chilperic's actions and not the other way around. Uh, Brunhild had relied on her capable husband, so when he was killed, she was left with basically no support, which was a mistake that she would never make again. It must also be said uh, that these women are truly extraordinary. Brunhild especially, I find endlessly fascinating. Rarely in history can you find someone who gets thrown out of power multiple times and in such a bloody and dangerous period, yet she keeps clawing her way back to the top of the pile. She's absolutely incredible, and we haven't seen her best yet in the podcast. Just one last note on that one as well, though. Uh, We'll see this moving forward, but the queens do not maintain their level of influence. Later queens like Balthild will try to wield power like Brunhild or Fredegund had before her, Uh, but the more powerful the nobles became, the harder and harder it is for queens to amass enough power to really influence politics. What do you think are the slim chances the Merovingians seem to have for seizing power in Gaul, and what might have happened otherwise? Do you think the Burgundians or Visigoths might have been drastically different rulers? It's hard to say, like with all alternative history takes, we don't really know the answer. Um, The Burgundians seem to have been cursed with constant instability, but you could say the same about the Franks, honestly. They also adopted the Nicene Creed of Christianity quite soon after Clovis had, so the differences are actually pretty minimal. I think the Burgundians had lived in their kingdom for longer, it was wealthier, and they had lost a lot of their population in the struggles with Aetius. I think on the face of it, their rule would have resembled Frankish rule quite a bit, but probably just slightly more Roman influence and a little bit of a lighter military touch. If I was being harsh, I might suggest that they would have struggled to hold on to most of Gaul in the way the Franks didn't, just because they didn't have the same kind of manpower. As for the Visigoths, uh, this is one of the really big what-ifs of the period. What if Clovis had lost the Battle of Vuil? and Alaric had emerged as a young, energetic, and ambitious new king. With Clovis dead, the budding Frankish realm probably would have struggled, and I don't think the Visigoths would have had a hard time dominating most of Gaul. If they'd managed to dominate at least most of Gaul, then they would have been most of the way to recreating the Western Roman Empire. Remember, one of the original hopes of the Gothic kings had been to put a Gothic son on the throne of the West. Theodoric and the Ostrogoths already ruled Italy. It is not out of the question that the Goths might have come together and ruled Gaul, Iberia, and Italy. In that case, we are looking at a very different history of Europe, even if their makeshift empire didn't last that long. On that thought... The way that we look at this history introduces a lot more narrative than things would have seemed to have for the people of the time. How does this narrative perception affect the way that we think about these people now, and how has this narrative been abused for personal gain over the years? Yeah, I've talked a little bit about our perspective bias before, and it is a really important thing to keep in mind. Uh, We tend to think of the Frankish conquest of Gaul as inevitable because that's the way it happened, but it wasn't inevitable at all. The format of this podcast doesn't help, as we move chronologically, and I tend to tell stories a fair amount. 
This helps us find that balance between academic and accessible, and makes the podcast way more listenable, but it does add to the sense of narrative. When modern historians write, they mostly avoid this narrative focus and focus on specific phenomena or issues. Even when doing big overviews of a period, they'll still break it down and approach it this way. The narrative massively affects the way we think about these people. Because Clovis won, and he founded a dynasty that would rule Gaul for hundreds of years, we tend to think of him as great. And that is what the Snake Clovis episode was meant to work against, but it's hard to break those solidified perceptions of these figures. Uh, We tend to look at Clothar with rose-tinted glasses again because he won, even though he did so using some truly horrific means. This isn't unique to the Merovingians. Perceptions of historical figures are often not based on reality. We still call Richard I of England the Lionheart, despite the fact that he was, in reality, an incredibly bloodthirsty, greedy, power-hungry monster of a human. It's weird that he gets such a heroic reputation while Saladin was in reality the honourable and chivalrous one, but we don't have time to get into all that. The extra wrinkle with the Franks is how important they would become to the two biggest states in Western Europe, France and Germany. For centuries, there was this weird scholarly tussle over the legacy of the Franks. French and German historians argued continuously over whether they were French or German, which is a big reason why in our second episode I go on a rant about how this is a meaningless argument because they were neither. Uh, But this obvious fact didn't stop French painters from making these massive patriotic paintings of Clovis, depicting him as this proto-French king, or Bavarian historians trying to trace the genealogy of the Franks to prove that they were really Germans the whole time. But even without this nationalism and national myth-making, Frankish figures are still controversial today. The example I always like to use is the Charlemagne Prize, which is a prize given out once a year in Aachen for excellent work in building European unity. Now, I can safely say that Charlemagne did not give a crap about European unity when he was off massacring Saxons for disobeying him. But that's not even the weird part. The weird part is that while Charlemagne is being reworked into the symbol of a common European heritage, He is also a favourite figure of the far right, who see him as a proto-crusading figure. Now, this one is even more silly historically, as Charlemagne was actually on good diplomatic terms with the Muslim Caliph, and spent way more time fighting Christians than he did fighting Muslims. Narratives like this are almost always built after the fact, and we have to try see through them to find the truth of what things were like at the time. That's why this podcast doesn't just tell the stories, we also try to analyse them to adjust for this. And lastly, I think it'd be good if we could take a moment and discuss what's happening around the Franks in the neighbouring kingdoms, or in several cases, what will become kingdoms. Yeah, we haven't talked about the others for a while, there's always too much going on in Gaul, so I'm going to start with the big ones and then we can talk about the others and how they're going to develop a little in the future. Um, Now that Justinian's invasions are over, the Mediterranean kind of enters a period of stagnation. The Lombards and the Romans have this kind of never-ending seesaw war in Italy going on. 
The Lombard kings basically pick up where the Ostrogoths left off and build their power base in the rich Po Valley in northern Italy. But the Romans refused to give up their strongholds in central and southern Italy, mostly well-fortified coastal cities that they could defend with relatively few men and with their superior navy. This will be the status quo until the Lombards become a little too successful in the 700s and the Pope realises that the Romans can't defend him anymore and he turns to the Franks. Um, The Romans, as I mentioned earlier, were exhausted from trying to realise all of Justinian's grand ambitions and his successes as emperor were not the same kind of capable men that he was. They enter into a series of devastating and ultimately fruitless wars with the Sassanid Persians, and both empires deplete themselves so effectively that they will fall easy prey to the unexpected Muslim invasions out of Arabia. The Sassanids just cease to exist, and the Romans lose their most valuable possessions in Syria, the Levant, Egypt, and North Africa. The Roman state that survives in the Balkans and Anatolia is still a formidable force, but it's not the same kind of power that we see at the beginning of this period. There are short bursts of success, but Roman power will really only decline from here on out. The Visigoths in Spain are mostly wrapped up in civil wars and decline. Their grip on Spain is basically unchallenged, so they mostly turn inwards as the conflict between the Nicene and the Aryan branches of Christianity fuels their internal conflict. Eventually, the Nicene Creed wins out, but it takes way longer and is infinitely more bloody than the same process was amongst the Franks and Burgundians. Uh, They enter into what can only be called a period of decline, and the state is so weakened that when the Muslims arrive and win a single major battle in the early 700s, basically the entire Visigothic state just collapses. Britain is kind of a weird one at this point in history. Uh, The surviving Romano-Britonic petty kingdoms are losing ground to the Celtic raiders like the Scots, Welsh, and Picts, but are losing way more ground to the invading Saxons, Jutes, and Angles. Uh, The whole of Great Britain is in flux, and eventually it'll form the Octarchy, which is a rough balance of eight major kingdoms, mostly Anglo-Saxon, with a few minor ones as well. But then the Danes are going to come and upend the whole thing anyway. The most interesting thing we can talk about is the formation of German kingdoms. There are a lot of reasons why societies develop the way they do, but contact with other societies is a very big one. In the same way that contact with the Romans changed the Franks, Goths, and Vandals, contact with the Franks and with the Lombards to a lesser extent slowly changed the German groups on their borders. When Clovis and his sons were fighting off the Thuringians and the Alamanni, they were mostly tribal confederations of an older style. By the time of Charlemagne, the Germans to the east had mostly developed into centralized monarchies, His experience with the Bavarian Kingdom is a perfect example of this. Uh, I like to call this process cultural bleeding, and you can see many of these smaller tribes coalescing and centralizing into recognizable states, only to be later mopped up by Charlemagne. Still, it is an interesting process on its own. The big exceptions to this are the northern tribes on the borders of Gaul, the Saxons especially, but also other groups like the Frisians, basically just refuse to change, 
and have to be forcibly subdued. Charlemagne spends 20 years trying to quote-unquote pacify the pagan Saxons, and does what can be best described as a kind of cultural genocide to finally break them. Uh, This is one of the reasons why it's so odd to me that Charlemagne is a symbol of German nationalism, because his most significant conquest involved massacring actual Germans in Germany and destroying their culture and religion. But, you know, whatever. Alright, well, that's it for our little departure from our normal schedule. Thank you everyone for listening, we hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll see you next week for a new episode. See you then.